1: Welcome to episode 99 of the See Here podcast. My name is Morris. I'm here in Melbourne and over in Bath is Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Hello. We're proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion podcast. If this is your first time joining us, we discuss music-related films. And today we have a music-related film that's sort of not music-related, but it is. We're speaking to director Kevin Hosman, who is also an album cover designer And he's just gone and released a really wonderful new film called The Album. In it, he speaks to a lot of legendary people who have designed album covers. You know, those things that you used to buy at the record store or the CD store and you'd pick up and you'd look at the cover and it'd be a great piece of artwork. Well, that's this side of the story. We always talk about the music. That's very important. But the album cover is often what sells you the album. That's what this film is all about, and Kevin is a wonderful raconteur. He told us a lot of stories, some related to the film, some related just to his own work as an album cover designer. So we'll play the trailer for the film, and then we'll be back in a moment to speak with Kevin. And after that, Bernie and I will be back to talk with you about what is going to be happening for episode 100. We made it, yay, eight and a half years later. How did we do it, Bernie? I don't know. We'll be back in a moment with our interview with Kevin Hosman. You're listening to See Here 99. Think of your
2: favorite album. What do you see? Ever wonder who decided on that image? How did the music and the cover become one?
3: I was one of those guys whose life changed the night the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. Literally, in one hour, my life changed.
4: I wanted to be part of music. I wanted to be a part of making imagery about music. John Lennon walked in with an
3: acetate and put it on the turntable. And there it was, Abbey Road. This whole trip of being a photographer was a total accident. Most of my friends on Laurel Canyon were becoming known, like David Crosby, Stephen Stills, Joni Mitchell, and then one by one, they all became famous.
0: Mick met Andy Warhol, and he's talking about doing some kind of an album cover with a real zipper in it. I said to Marvin Gaye face to face, I don't want to do what you want done. Do I tell you how to sing?
3: I came across this photograph, which was a light shining through a window onto a clear paperweight, and it created this prismatic effect. I've got it. It's that. I show him the drawings, and then he comes out. He goes,
2: I like it.
1: I just
3: want white socks.
1: He said, I want you to go look at the Zappos I'm Madonna. This girl's great, she could be a big star, she could be a big MTV star.
0: Russ Solomon, who's the guy who started and owned Tower Records, said, you think people are gonna buy music over their computers? And I said, yeah, and he goes, "Ha,
2: ha ha ha, you're crazy! You know, it didn't really
0: matter if I was a man or a woman. I took good pictures and you
4: don't work if you don't deliver. Oh my God, we got it. We have to do this cover, it was one of those magic moments. In just a three-year period, I did the first covers for MC Hammer, N.W.A., and Tupac. I was just 24 years old. You have these experiences and you think, wow, how is this even possible
1: that I actually am getting paid to do this? When you think about the disruption of culture that music has always been at the center of, I'm grateful that I got to be a part of it. Welcome back to episode 99 of See Here Podcast. And Bernie and I are really, really happy that we have on the other end of a Skype connection film director and cover album designer Kevin Hossman. Welcome to See Here, Kevin. Hey, thank you for having me. This is going to be fun. Kevin, you've gone and directed a new documentary called The Album about the art of, well, cover art. Congratulations for getting that out. Uh, For years, most people have lived by the creed that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, don't let what you see let you think you can determine what's underneath the covers, as it were. It's obviously far more complex, but do you think that an album cover is supposed to be a window to the music
4: that it represents. That's a great segue. No one has ever said the book by the cover idea with an album cover before, so I give you kudos on that. That's a great way of actually looking at it. Because what the album cover actually truly is, is one single image, one frame from an entire movie, right? I'm just saying the bands themselves, the artists, they put in at least months in the studio, putting something together. There are eight to 12 songs, right? And here you're supposed to pick one image, one isolated image that conveys all of that energy, that excitement, the sadness, the joy, you know, the rock and roll, and to have that decision made by a guy like me, an art director, is like, yeah, I think this depicts your music, is really a challenge when you have artistic, creative people who are the ones who actually created that music. And here you're trying to come in halfway through the courtship of them at a record label, right? They meet the A&R director, they sign, they they do a press tour, they they record, they they master. And then you're basically at the very end of it, just given a cassette. And from that cassette, it's supposed to be three or four songs. their demo usually. And you're supposed to listen to that and say, oh, this is exactly what their music means to me, an outsider, right? But what we try to do as an art director is... We live off our past experience. We know that that sound that we're hearing is similar to other sounds, right? And, What an art director does also, if he or she is smart, um, we use this before we use the mouth, right? The ears before the mouth. And we ask the people in the record label what their thoughts are also. So it's putting basically one single frame from an entire movie on that. And that is so different from what we have nowadays. You know, with an album, we used to have it so you'd pick it up pull out the vinyl you'd put it on the turntable you'd put down the needle and then you would give that artist complete time you you weren't multitasking you weren't putting it on a playlist you weren't i don't know being disrespectful quite honestly when they put something together they like dark side of the moon think that you know money would actually be on a playlist right you got to hear the entire album to really understand what they were feeling right so nowadays with spotify with tiktok and and youtube they have multiple images that are being brought out on a daily basis to keep their fan base Alive, attentive, wanting to hear more music, go see them on a tour. But with all the barrage of images that they see nowadays, there isn't that one iconic symbol going back to Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. The way he spoke of it is that the band was disappointed with so many of these weird ass covers that Hypnosis would keep coming up with, right? And they simply wanted a symbolic image that would depict the band. And as they, they tell the story, they're really kind of, Land on stage, and they really have a lot of graphics and imagery to kind of make that, you know, mind expansion happen. And they just kind of are like craftwork. If you've ever seen them live, they just stand behind their computers, but there's no energy there. And what the prism really reflected, so to speak, they would create something from such a stationary uh, shape that, um, piece was a conduit for the energy of their music and that. They came up with it by just looking through a scientific illustration book in their studio. And it's one of those when, when the, you are looking to try to answer a question or answer what a band is hoping you to get for them, which is a single image that represents all their music, often it is very symbolic it's very gestural. It tells a story because it has so much context that the audience already knows, right? In the movie,
2: so I'm, I'm terrible with names and I haven't got anything written down, I apologize but they're they're, uh, talking about Dark Side of the Moon and how if if it hadn't been a million selling multi-million selling LP would that cover still be a classic cover? And Obviously in that case yeah you could say it probably would but does the cover help make the album a classic album or does it become a classic album and a classic album cover after years and it's seeped into people's consciousness and people associate the two and so on this is you know something that you obviously talk about in the film but do you want to maybe elaborate on that a little bit, how you feel
4: about that? Yeah, what there was, um, Jerry Hyden is in the movie and she was basically the art goddess to me. When you start out in the record industry, you usually work for one of the record labels and then you go freelance because you can make three times as much money, right? So Warner Brothers at the time was absolutely the Rolls Royce art department of all time, right? So to actually be asked to be a freelancer for them was really quite an honor. Um, jerry Haydn did all of the madonna albums she did all the prints she did the talking heads you think of that time period at warner brothers which they were on top she was the creative director for virtually every album <laughs> i think people bought during that time i worked out that my art is on 40 million records that's pretty good right well, yeah yeah i'm a tenth of what she has when you're talking about every single madonna every single prince i think that's a bigger volume <laughs> when she was asked, and she said she was asked quite often about it, she said when the band was sitting down with them to talk and discuss, so what do you want to have on your cover? They would always say, I want a classic cover. Like, she heard it so many times that she would, she kind of let it go. She says, like, this is how you get a classic cover. You write amazing songs. You go out and tour and sell Tens of millions of records, and I can guarantee the image I create for you will be a classic cover because it's just like Pink Floyd, Dark Southern Moon. In the story, it also was uh, mentioned it's 65 million records. What if it only sold a half million records? Would it be just as profound and as important? And on virtually every T-shirt rock and roll shop that you see, that dark side of the moon prism is on a lot of chests. So would people want to wear that and identify with it if it was just nothing? Misfits, which is another awesome thought, is the Misfits image that they came up with that on a few other covers, right? Distorted mm-hmm. here and there. The Misfits sold a million records if they were lucky. How many times, millions of times have you seen that Misfits image sure, yeah. on a T-shirt, right? Mm-hmm. They gave us something that went beyond their music. And that's actually what's kind of interesting sometimes is sometimes the image outlasts the music itself. hmm
2: I guess you could say the uh, the Ramones are another example of that. You see that Ramones T-shirt,
4: that logo, just absolutely everywhere, don't you? It's crazy to think that some of these people create a logo in an afternoon. Uh, something like that obviously was done with Xerox of the Xerox, just like all punk, right? It's just punk. You, you Xerox this thing, you steal that thing. You're about anarchy, right? You're just reappropriating. But when it's something like the Sublime logo, right, that was done by a tattoo artist. I went over to his house and met him for Sublime, right? It's the the, the sun kind of awkward looking drawing. He did that in an afternoon. Did he get anything more than the 200 bucks? No. T-shirt shops did. Yeah. Same thing uh, with the logo that was done for Nirvana, right? Robert Fisher, who was the art director on all the Nirvana stuff, he had drawn that right it was the smiley face with a, you know the crosses on the eyes and stuff like that it got into a legal battle with paul frank the designer who did a modification of that and then the nirvana trust went after him and said you can't use that image kirk cobain drew that bullshit kirk cobain did not draw that it was the simple art director robert who didn't get a dime for actually just doing that quick little logo he just did it eh, put it in there right so when you're creating an album you're creating a lot of pieces, a lot of stuff. There's a front, there's a back, there's an insert. If it was a CD, be the front, the back, all the pages inside. Maybe it was a booklet that came out in a poster, right? And then there's the inlay tray and the CD. There's a lot of stuff that you have to create. So, again, when it was an album cover, that's one image, and then you turn it over, you look at the back, usually the lyrics. But when it's a CD, you had to, like, expand. Okay, my photo shoot that I got the one image for, now I have to use the entire photo shoot, practically, in inside that cd booklet because it's pagination it's a storytelling mechanism right so Mm -hmm. you're using um photography in a different way because you're just shooting the guy's shoes or somebody laughing right it's not that this is the image for it can i go into nwa yeah of course yeah yeah. to the same thing so with nwa i did straight out of compton which is the image of all of the guys you're looking up and easy e eric wright has a gun and he's pointed at your head very challenging because at the time rap was not racked in the record stores because it had a lot of swearing in it. It had fucked mm-hmm. the police. And
3: not the other color so police think they have the authority to kill a minority. Fuck that shit cause I ain't the one who a punk motherfucker with a badge and a gun to be beaten on. And thrown in jail, we can go toe toe in the middle of a sale.
4: Get off your dick and tell your bitch to come here is actually one of the songs you can't <laughs> put that. <laughs> At Kmart, right? Or any other kind of normal store. So when I proposed to NWA, I've seen the other stuff that you've done. It was a very run DMC. New York, right? They were in their outfits and run DMC. And was like, you guys are Southern California. You're SoCal. You're Compton. You're straight out of Compton. You're the gangsters. You're West Coast, right? Whenever I uh, would do a rap cover for any of the guys on the West Coast, I'd have to ask Blue or Red because there was one color I couldn't use right the cl- the crips and the bloods so you never could use the same colors on the cover but when I went to them and said okay so this is the this is what I'd like to do I had two ideas it was, your music is so powerful, it's as if you've knocked somebody down and they're on the ground, and your second song is about to take them out because it's that powerful. It's like having a gun in your hand, which was also during the time of the L.A. riots. So I was just trying to put my thumb right on, how am I going to screw with people make somebody a notice, this cover, right? The other idea that I had was I found a shoeshine shop, and I said, what I want to do is I want to put you guys in the shoe shine place And it's like you're waiting, right, for you to serve. So I had little girl role reversal. Again, I'm just challenging people's thoughts. White girl, dirty white girl with overalls eating watermelon in front of all of these black guys. The girl wouldn't stay in the shot. She's only two years old. She wouldn't stay in the shot. She was freaked out by these guys. So I walked into the shot and I'm faking that I'm shining Easy Ease tennis shoes, whatever we call those things, shoes, gym shoes. That's what I call them. And I was like, well, you don't shine gym shoes, tennis shoes, Nikes. It was kind of a little awkward and silly, but it kept the girl in the shot. The little girl is my daughter of five kids, and that two-year-old is now 38. That was a story that she could tell because that became Gangsta Gangsta, which was their 12-inch, a single, didn't become the album. It almost became the album. I almost was on Straight out of Compton. But because of the, the fact that we shot it only in black and white, Brian Turner, the owner of Priority Records, didn't want to use it. It's the only dad-daughter who's not the artist to be on a gold-selling record, so that in a sense is my family photo album. We're on a gold record. But when I did Tupac's first cover, we were in Burbank talking about his first cover, and I went to the bathroom. He follows in just a little bit after, and I hear his voice. He goes, "That's where I've seen you. That's where I've seen you before. You're on that cover." It was because of the fade that I had on my back, the back of my head, standing at the urinal, kind of an odd place for somebody to recognize <laughs> you. Yeah. But he came in and he says, "That's where I've, I saw you before. That's awesome." So here, Tupac kind of an important guy in music history, recognized me from being on a cover that I should have never been on.
1: You've already gone and brought up the whole notion of you as art director yourself, as well as being in this case, film director. But where was it that you decided that graphic design was going to be your thing? I mean, we know, we hear a lot of musicians say, I heard this record and that's when I knew I had to play this instrument and be in a band. Did you see... Uh, cover art image and thought, man, that's what I want to do with my life. Or we were already drawing and then made your way to uh, the music industry. What's your background?
4: I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, and I wanted to be a Disney animator. Absolutely wanted to animate because I wanted to tell stories. When I was a kid, no one told me that there was a graphic designer that did any and every logo, shape, design, surface the towels, everything is designed. Everything has a logo on it. Everything has type on it. And that had to be put on it by some designer. I didn't even know that design existed. So when I came to Cal Arts, which is actually where all of the animators are actually from, anyway, I wanted to be a Disney animator, realized that these people were a drawing in their sleep and it wasn't fair. I wasn't ever going to be as good as that. So I found graphic design. And one of my teachers was Roland Young. Roland Young was one of my mentors. Uh, throughout my college experience, but he's also one of those persons who proliferated design elements that I never knew it was him in my entire album collection since a kid. You know, the Styx Equinox cover where it has the ice cube or shape that's on fire. like wow that's awesome here is my teacher in real life and he was the one who influenced a lot of the drawing that i did in high school that i wouldn't be but five years until i finally met him and actually he influenced me even further but he had great friendships with roy kahara at capitol records their art director at the time and he introduced me and then i started there so when i started at capitol records the first cover i did with megadeth so far so good so what And then I did John Lennon's Imagine, which was that drawing that John had done. I was the designer on that.
1: The film soundtrack one, yeah.
4: I did the Beastie Boys' Paul's Boutique. And that's a fun experience with a band that uh, basically pixel-pushed and... I'll go into that for a second real quick. When I was at Capitol Records, I was about 24. They were about 23. So they gave me the cover because it was rap, because I had just done MC Hammer's Let's Get It Started, very first kind of rap album that Capitol was able to get out there and get successful with. I thought, oh, this rap thing, let's just get a new kid. And it was a big blessing for me. So while I was there, I started hanging out with them. They would come up and they would just hang out in my office. So they're just off of license to ill, right? Fight for your right to party. And here those guys, these celebrities are in my space because they needed some place to hang out. And it's a very small space. So I heard a lot of intimate stories and things that were going on in their life. But one of my favorite memories is being up on the Capitol Records Tower, right? That's the circle building with the kind of the sphere on it. We went up to the roof because they wanted to put on a flagpole. Didn't have a flagpole on the building. So think about being as powerful as a bunch of kids who says, oh, head of Capitol Records, this is a very famous historic building. I want you to put a flagpole on top of it. What's their answer? When do you want it up there? So I was there when they hoisted this flagpole up there because what the story, the idea was, is if you ever saw Capitol Records, the logo, it's an oval. This is Capitol. And then underneath it, it says Records. Adam Yauk's idea was Beastie Boys Records. Make this thing a big flag and fly it like a bunch of pirates that they just took over the Hollywood landmark from a bunch of kids from New York City because there was a whole thing. Again, the rap thing was New York, L.A., So we're up there and we're the only ones there. And we have our feet dangling over the side of the highest perch that you could be in, looking at the Hollywood sign, smoking a joint, passing it back and forth. And I was thinking, here's three of the Beastie Boys at their prime. And I'm just there passing the joint around with them. And I don't know if life could get any better. This is the job I want forever. Back to Adam Yau, He was very much hands on and he was a brilliant man. He passed away. Unfortunately, he was truly a creative genius. But when you're 22 and 23 and you're trying to get a project done and he's hang- over your shoulder saying, no, 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 move it over. No, move it over to this. No, you know, just kind of making you sweat. There was one point where I said, go fuck yourself. And I walked out the office and it's a circular building, right? So here I am walking around just to let the steam out of my ears. I just told off their number one artist that they spent more money than God to get. And here I'm just telling them to go fuck themselves. I walk around the building and it's very small. And I came back around just like it was a record player. And he was right there and he followed me and apologized. And we became great friends. But sometimes these people have never been told no. So when you're coming up with that album cover that is so important to them, that has to relate to all the blood, sweat and tears that they put into it in a single image, you have to be on board with those guys or they're going to dismiss any and all ideas you have. And they're always going to look for the one that's not on that table. So Marriage Made in Heaven, you got to make sure that they like you, that you get along and that you're able to communicate what they're expecting.
1: You were working there for Capitol Records as you say but how much work for most designers well let's not talk about nowadays I guess nowadays is a completely different thing but say back in the nineties or earlier, how often were designers working as in house and how often were they contractors, like a a company or an artist would say, I like what you do. I want you even though you've never done anything for my record company.
4: Yeah, you prove yourself. Like I said, sometimes majority of the time, art directors that do album packaging started somehow as a production assistant or a junior designer at one of the larger labels. And then just by through osmosis, my first thing that I did at Capitol Records was a sticker, two color sticker. That went in my book. You know why? It was for Frank Sinatra, (laughs) right? So here you're doing a sticker that's irrelevant to everyone else. But to me, it's like, yeah, but it says Frank Sinatra. So you build your credibility through doing the small pieces. And then from there, they give you an album in-house, right? Just to kind of, it's a thank you, right? It's kind of like if you are, if you're writing sitcoms, the writer's assistant is the guy in the room making sure he or she writes down all the notes. And then each season thank you for being in our lives and doing such a great job and bringing us coffee when we asked for it and two sugars, please, that they then give them one of the scripts to write for that 22 episodes they need to come up with. So you're just basically given a freebie. And what was interesting and very important about that, Capitol Records, really during the time that I was there, really struggled with trying to get something out there. They didn't have big successes, but they still had a lot of power from their catalog because they're re-releasing the Beatles and the Beach Boys. So they had power and money behind them. That's when they got into MC Hammer. They hit that. And that gave me credibility to then do Beastie Boys. And then from Beastie Boys, my friend, who was a Priority Record, said, hey, you got this project. Would you come over on the weekend and do it? And we did Easy E, Easy Does It, and NWA Straight Out Compton the same weekend. Those are three multi-platinum selling records. But you don't know that at the time. My favorite work that I've ever done doesn't have a gold record next to it. My favorite is when it was a great photo that I loved the logo I did, that the package came out nice. When you do a thousand covers and out of those thousand you have 25 that went platinum or went gold you know, it's like those are the ones people will remember. But those aren't the ones that you're cherishing because you are a graphic designer and you want to do great work. So sometimes it has nothing to do with you. And that cover just becomes huge and famous because the music inside it is inspiring people. So, uh,
2: Kevin, when did you first or when did the, uh, the idea of making a film about your work, your industry sort of first occur? How, how did you go about sort of putting that into action? And from what we were saying before we started recording, it took you, what, five, six years?
4: to get to this point so talk us through it so a single success in an industry lasts five ten years think about an nba player think about a basketball player think about some musician that had an amazing album they're lucky if they had their second and third led zeppelin had 10 great albums not everyone is that successful it's also like graphic design you have a window You're the new kid on the block. You were lucky enough to have a few successes that gave, oh, I want the guy who did Straight out of Compton. I did Stone Temple Pilots, their first cover also as well. So that's two different genre styles, right? So if you hit one, you're able to kind of get the next one. I want the guy who did Stone Temple Pilots. But that doesn't last as long as you'd like it to. So what happens is there's this thing called the dot-com and bomb that I was able to hit, and I was able to hit two IPOs. There was money out there in the dot-com industry, the world. And I switched from the record industry into the dot-com era. I was working at a dot-com company, and they had an icebreaker that they wanted you to do. Five seconds, 20 slides in PowerPoint. Tell us a story about yourself that we don't know. So I took 20 gold records. I put them on the screen, and I had five seconds to tell them I was the art director of that and a funny story behind it. These were people who had half of those in their collections as kids, right? So here I was able to tell them behind the scenes stories, smoking pot with the Beastie Boys. Slowly, they were not just in their seats, they were standing and laughing. And oh my God, this old man did all of that stuff. And by the time I was done, they were clapping. By the time I showed them the gold platinum records that I had brought from home, I said, so this is what I used to do. And I thought from that icebreaker, and that was only a five minute dissertation, if I could actually call up and get the art directors that I knew and worked with, because everyone in the film, for the most part, I worked with and I knew them as friends. I said, if I could tell two of my stories and these 30 people could tell two of their stories, like I would have an album movie talking about What was coming up with these crazy covers in the the behind-the-scenes stories? But what I really wanted to do is tell the story of what the album used to be in people's lives and how the CD altered that, changed it. Record companies got greedy. They sold you your same collection for more for a cheaper manufacturing cost to them. So you bought your collection again. But what it did is it propped up a lot of these legacy companies that basically it was called corporate rock. Remember that? And then we went into grunge rock. It kind of nirvana saved a lot of that. And punk and rap actually kind of took off hip hop. I wanted to show that progression to the CD and then into digital distribution, into digital disruption and showing that What we used to do to create a single lasting image has now been replaced by a multitude of consistent retelling. We're here. We're out here. I had this for lunch. This is a photo of me at the zoo. This is my new girlfriend. This is me in my new shoes. This is what I had for dinner. So everyone is constantly being barraged by what that artist has been up to. Every 24 hours, we've lost that connection to what was the single image that we held and gave undivided attention to an artist in our room leaning against our bed. And with those earphones on or amazing speakers that people don't have anymore, there was a vibration off of woofers that you don't get with earbuds. And that's what you're missing. Basically, I have six kids. I have five grandkids and none of these people ever lived before an iPod. So how would they know what vinyl sounded like? I wanted to let them know this was the industry I was a part of, and it was a great experience, and I wanted to put it in the historic can to say, we're not going to lose those stories, because most of the people that I interviewed are over 80.
1: A hilarious story in the film, uh, you talk about a designer called Tom Wilkes and his, I can't remember if it was a, uh, like a single cover or it was a billboard for the Delta Lady single by Joe Cocker. Could you tell through the story a little bit about Tom Wilkes and about that cover, what he got away with?
4: At the very beginning of the record industry, there was this... I'm saying the beginning of the record industry when basically teenagers took over because they had the disposable income that everyone wanted. So what happened is they didn't have the old stodgy guys creating the record covers for Mel Torme. They needed it for the Beatles, the Beach Boys, as I was saying with Capitol Records. They needed somebody, an art director who could relate. As I was saying, you need to relate to the artists you're working with. So they started hiring a lot of young people. There was this kid, Tom Wilkes, who had just done the Monterey Pop Festival poster and catalog for the event. And A&M Records said, we need this guy. So he became their first art director of this brand new company and he had a reputation of being a ladies' man and also a crazy SOB that didn't have boundaries. He always, similar to what I had said about my work, I always wanted to have something challenging that would be provocative. Covers are one thing. You get a cover out, you do singles. You also do ads. And there was an ad that he had done for Joe Cocker, Delta Lady, He thought, I got something. I'm gonna see if people notice. So he took a girl into a photo shoot and he photographed her. The contact sheet is actually in my movie of her crotch, very tight cropping of her crotch. So he took that, he blew it up dot screen wise, so it's almost you can't really recognize what it is if you just look at it held it in your hands. He flipped it upside down and he put Delta Lady, Joe Cocker. No one saw it until it was published and in the magazine. But if you actually took that same ad, flipped it upside down, put it on the wall, and stepped back, you would have realized that half tone dot screen did not camouflage the fact that that was a woman's vagina that that was because it was pubic hair it was a try remember the 70s it was a triangle <laughs> his boss got fired for not catching it but they didn't fire tom why didn't they fire tom because he created great art and they allowed the lunatics to run the asylum he also did neil young's cover he would do a lot of freelance stuff one of the other covers that he had done and i've actually seen this too is that it was very much with the rolling stones you know the rolling stones cover with the urinal
1: yeah biggest banquet
4: he'd done that one as well so he was in with the Rolling Stones, and he heard that they wanted one of their covers to be called Necrophilia. They went past that. I think they were talked out of the word Necrophilia for their album cover, but he did a bunch of comps, and there are a lot of comps that I've seen that are a little unusual and would have never been racked in any record store, but that was the unusual time is that young people were able to be as creative as they could, and then they pulled back.
1: You mentioned at the start of your answer there that as a result of teenagers... Being the ones with the disposable income, they decided, right, we're going to go with the artwork created by Art departments in record companies rather than the uh, marketing committee as it were i'm wondering like before that became a thing there were surely covers that were created that i can't imagine a guy with a, a pipe and a tweed jacket being the one who said yes i think that'll be the one so i'm thinking like the first rca album that elvis presley did has a photo of him swiveling his hips guitar his neck and whatever font elvis on the Vertically on the left-hand side of the cover and presley on the horizontally on the bottom of the cover I mean tame by nowadays standards But I imagine for the 1950s a very sexually provocative cover and I can't imagine a guy with a pipe and a tweed jacket Sort of saying yes, I think us from the marketing department We think that'd be a good time this 1950s the, the conservative establishment are doing everything that they can to not put that sort of image in teenagers' faces. So were there exceptions? whether or, or was it just a particularly adventurous guy with a tweed jacket?
4: The people who ran the visuals from a record label were not the art vectors in the art department. They were, in a sense, considered production. The people who conveyed an artist's look, appearance on a cover, and how it would be seen in a record store, those were the promotion people. So the promotion people were the ones who had the contacts with record stores and the radio stations. And they were very much in charge because it wasn't really the music, like you were saying with Elvis, it was a lot of the stuff that Capitol Records had was Johnny Mercer Jackie Gleason and music to drink martinis by. You know, it was your hit parade. It wasn't really pointing out a character, a personality, a persona that was Elvis. That's why that box was blown out. And that stuff really started to happen. And that's why they had those young designers in there, because they were the ones who could actually come up with that stuff and weren't thinking, oh, we could never do that. It was, what is that term? Don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. And that's really kind of how how all of that went. I mean, think about John Lennon with Yoko on the cover of Virgins, virgins, where two virgins on two virgins, they were naked. This guy's John Lennon and his wife. Those are like, think about anybody nowadays that would do that and how profound that was because nudity was not put on a cover, especially blind faith. How the heck did they get away with that? And also the nude children in Led Zeppelin, Houses of the Holy, with the early pubescent children. You could never do that nowadays. Oh, can I tell you one of the ideas i had for ice cube it's kind of funny cover that never happened ice cube kill it will was one of the records that i had done also and it's him handing you the gun it's a real gun it's not loaded but it's basically i have so much confidence and power that i can hand you a loaded gun and you wouldn't know what to do with it i'm the guy who can shoot to kill kill it will so i was thinking because again i put my babies in a lot of my covers and stuff like that i just had zoe i didn't have her my wife did and she was just two months old so i said ice cube i got a two-month old baby what if we did this for Kill It Will? What if you are holding a naked white baby up, down like this by your foot and the cover is Kill It Will? He said, you're a crazy motherfucker we will never do that. You could throw out the craziest shit in front of these people and they would go, oh my God, oh my God, my career. Back then it didn't feel as if with NWA and all of that stuff. Th- no one really cared too much about their career because they needed to challenge. They needed to get somebody's attention. And one of the great things that I was blessed with were for the most part, all of my covers that I had done were all their first covers. Covers. Each one of them, N.W.A., Tupac, they were all their first covers because they didn't know they could be assholes yet, and they would look to us for leadership. Instead of going in there, you only had a ten thousand dollar budget. You didn't have the hundred thousand dollar budget. This is a good story. You'll like this. When I did MC Hammer's first cover, it was basically a photograph I was handed. I put it through the fax machine, so it gritted it up, and I just put some color, signed some colors on it, and that was it. Let's get it started. Sold two million records. He came back at the time that I showed him that I was with him, and his brother, and we. We in a crowded office, and I was on the floor just pointing out the comps. right? It was just Burrell, his brother, drove him there. I left for Priority Records, and someone then, then did the next cover and the next cover. So the next cover, he comes in with a stretch limo, and he has all of these dancers and all these people he wants to sign. So they all get out of the this stretch limo, and they come in the, the, the room and he basically is hoofing, trying to get them to be produced by him and he can get all these people signed. That was his next one, which was the big album for him. And he did another one that went even bigger. And at that point he brought two limos to Capitol Records and everybody's piles out and he's trying to get all of these guys signed because p- producer, you can make some good money. And there was some good talent there. I did a few of the covers for some of them. By his fourth cover, he was let go from Capitol Records. He was going bankrupt and he was on Giant Records and I did his next cover and that's when I saw him again, from all that arc of success, he was bankrupt and driving himself to the photo shoot. <laughs> it's like, you, you're you there for a little bit, but you're not always going to be there, so you prepare for the future as well. I started with him <laughs> in his career, and then I watched his huge success, and then it's like the next time I see him, he's just driving himself, you know, wondering where he's going to be able to pay for his alimony. Were you able to
2: speak to uh, all the people you wanted to when you were shooting, and is there a lot more stuff that you shot that you didn't use in the film?
4: Well, like I was saying with Aubrey Powell, who was a part of Hypnosis, and he had done all of the Pink Floyd covers. He did Dark Side of the Moon. He also did In Through the Outdoor. He did three other Led Zeppelin physical graffiti. When talking with him, he had so many great stories. And the same thing with John Kosh, another Brit, who also did Hotel California and he did Let It Be and Abbey Road, but also Who's Next? You know, I get I have on film him talking about driving and pulling over because the guys had to pee. They go over there. They pee on the obelisk, you know, just the cement tower camera guy gets out photographs just a little bit on their way to a, a studio those are those times that wow that's that's an amazing time to actually be a part of something the uh story on that one is that not all of them could pee so one had to have water poured on the the cement so it looked like he was able to interact as well collaborate <laughs> i don't know what kind of word you would use on that but there were a lot of those where what i tried to do is have a uh, two things in parallel it was great stories from the albums but also the his history- story and how digital disruption kind of, you know, screwed up everything. But if you look, I have it so each one of those albums that are talked about are actually in sequential order and I have to look up on the internet. Some of them came in and were dropped in February and the very next one was coming in July. So they're quite accurate with their consistency of when they came out to one another and also quite honestly how they influenced people. Craig Braun, when he's in the piece, he had done the Rolling Stones cover with the zipper on it, right? One of the great stories about that one is that he started his career making stickers. His dad had a printing place, but he took that idea of going around and having stickers on the covers, right? So includes the hit. He was able to get in there and he had an alternative way to get into the art department and he would have people comp up some of his ideas. He did Schools Out, Alice Cooper. He also did Cheech and Chong, the big rolling papers one, Big Bamboo with the name of it, with the big, huge rolling papers. He came up with concepts. And what it was is because he was the manufacturer of all of these pieces. He didn't want just a single cover, slide it in, maybe get an insert printed. He wanted big ones so he could actually charge for it. Because he was the one that, he was the fabricator. So if a regular album is seven cents to build, he was making ones that were a dollar and $2 and $3 because he was the guy who would be (laughs) selling them those expensive covers. So when it came down to the Rolling Stone sticky fingers what was happening is that zipper was actually denting the tune lineup was actually sister morphine was actually being dented in the vinyl so they realized that they had to pull the zippers down which is even more suggestive so that it wouldn't dent the tune lineup, it would just be in the center. It wouldn't dent the vinyl it would be simply in the tune lineup. But it's just stuff like that, when you're actually pushing the envelope, you don't know your crisis until you have it. So things like that were out there. The other one that he had done that was really famous was the Andy Warhol and the... um, The Velvet Underground uh,
2: with the banana on the cover, the first Velvet Underground LP, yeah?
4: That was his first push into it, right? Because he was known for stickers. He did the big, huge sticker, and you could peel it back, and you could see the pink of the banana, which was obviously an Andy Warhol laugh. Mm -hmm. He'll slowly and see.
2: Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather With flesh, girl, child in the dark
1: I wanted to ask your thoughts about record labels where cover is an indication of a brand rather than the artwork selling an individual album's story so like before we started recording this we were talking a little bit about library music and labels like KPM which have a very consistent look I mean admittedly those albums were never meant to be sold to the general public but They decided, right, we're not going to try and do something every album cover to indicate what's on this record. It's going to be green uh, for one series or brand for another series. And it just says KPM in one corner and then whatever else that album is. And then the the other thing with a lot of classical recordings, like a, a label like Naxos... And it's a standard template, white around the side and then an old painting in the middle or in the bottom half of the thing. But it's always that standard template says Nexos. So do you know of any more contemporary labels that did a similar sort of thing or where do you personally stand on the idea? Have you have you ever worked for uh, like as a freelancer for a label that said, right, this is our standard template, put a little bit of yourself in it here, but it's got to meet this specification?
4: Capital Records had their classic division as angel records and they were very much like that. It was an angel recording because it said that it was quality because everyone would record Chopin or Beethoven, but the recording quality of Angel was always seen as pristine and better. So that was an example of it's more about our label than it is anything else. When I was in the record industry, there was also, remember cassettes, they would have the spine, the J card, and they'd have the spine. They always tried to put the logo of the label on it. Well, if I was to say Pixar as a movie company or Disney as movie company, you'd basically know pretty much what you're going to get, right? But if I said Warner Brothers, which had the large catalog of any recorded movies of of all time they're so diverse that putting that logo on there really didn't mean quality because some of them sucked and they were Superman and junk like that but then there was the other Harry Potter and all of the other pieces that they had done so when a label tried to say we are this, it only really works when you have something like Angel or DeWolf music and the others that you had mentioned where it was about a quality that you knew that you were going to get another one that was so obvious and can consistent with its style, almost became like a straight jacket, I would think, is Reed Miles, who did all of the Blue Note covers way back in the day. I was going to
1: come to that next, yeah.
4: Yeah, to the point that Reed Miles had come up with such a style that everyone emulated it. But when you think about it, all Reed Miles had was a session photo. Often he would photograph some of them himself, but for the most part, you're always given the same look, the same style. It starts in someone's mind. It's like, okay, these are the same photos I always get. The music is always sitting down. <laughs> the trumpet player, they're always standing up. They're always the same. What am I going to do to actually make them different? So one of the stories in the movie is Jackson came in. He was on A and M Records, and he had said, "I have a total thing for this Sonny Rollins cover, and I want to replicate it exactly the way you see it." What's interesting, and I didn't realize this until I really saw that cover, but. Joe Jackson actually plays saxophone. I thought he was just a singer, right? So when you you realize that he's a saxophone player to begin with, you realize he's probably played that Sonny Rollins cover so many times that he could tell you, you know, how many minutes each song was. So what they did is they basically redid it but what was nice is they did it with the colors being slightly different in the background. Remember the primary colors that Reed Miles would always do on all the blue notes? They substituted the colors so they would work together not repeating each other like a zoom. But being a a respected homage to the brilliance of what was all those blue note covers.
1: Jackson album Body and Soul was my introduction to Sonny Rollins. I hadn't heard of him at the time and then I read uh, a review in the newspaper of the album and it made reference to Sonny Rollins and like there was no internet or anything like that at the time. It's not just the photo, it's also the font, the placement, the fact that one says blue note, the other one says a So yeah, it, it is this great homage and, probably, and someone who's obviously important to Joe Jackson is certainly at that stage of his recording career what it is that he's doing I mean Body and Soul doesn't sound like Sonny Rollins volume two album or anything like that but it's obviously someone who meant musically a lot to him and so there we come back to that earlier discussion about the cover not just playing homage but also, but the cover reflecting the music I was very excited to see you talk about that in the film but the whole blue note thing I mean I love those covers and I Unlike, say, what I mentioned before with, say, the Naxos classical record label or other record label classical record labels in general or KPM, which really is the same thing every time. The yes. Blue Note albums, yeah, they're all black and white photos that have then gone through a colour filter and will be a photo of something. But it, it's instantly identifiable as a Blue Note record, but they're different enough to each be their own thing. And sometimes it's them with an instrument. One of my favourite covers is um, an album by dexter gordon called one flight up and he's i think in denmark and he's just standing in what looks like i don't know what, what they call in the commitments urban decay or something like that. standing outside a building and a very old decrepit building and there's a flight of stairs going up or something like that it's just a beautiful shot of you know one of my favorite saxophonists and yeah i just love what reed miles and francis wolf who i think was the photographer. What they had accomplished. I mean, the, the Blue Note albums themselves, you know, they're all recorded fantastically, but those covers, it, it's, it's a complete package. And there, there are books dedicated to Blue Note record covers and all for very good reasons. So I'm just absolutely thrilled that they got some airtime in your film.
4: I was, um, I'm not going to remember any of these guys' names, but one of the covers that I was able to do was for Miles Davis's group the year that he had passed. Uh, he was on Quincy Jones' label, Quest. And and they asked to get all of these guys together, Ron Carter, Wayne Shorter, all of these people so that Herbie Hancock and take photograph because they were playing the Hollywood Bowl and, you know, was able to see them there. And that was kind of nice. But going back to what Reed Miles probably had to deal with is these guys were the gods in jazz. And we think we're going to have an afternoon photographing gods. We're going to do it this way. And then we're going to do it with you and, and you and that, all the different variations that we're thinking. They said, we'll give you five minutes. And they only gave us five minutes because these guys, Ron Carter was actually writing music. Wayne Shorter was actually writing music as he was waiting for us to get the camera loaded. So these guys are creative geniuses that don't have any time for you. They've photographed. They have been photographed so many times. They don't want another photograph of themselves. They are not vain. They're musicians. You know, there's the rock star and then there's the musician. They were the musicians. They were the artists. And they didn't think a photograph would ever do justice, especially when their music was giving them that way of displaying who their soul was they didn't need a shot that was just as ugly as the mug that they did before but you were talking about having a cover actually be significant enough to pick it up or something thereof in a record store what I used to do this is when I was going to CalArts and I was a designer I would go into the record bin where they were the cheap ones three bucks to six bucks right and that's where I found Jelly Roll Norton and Theolonious Monk you know among others where it's like I, I didn't know who these guys were and muddy waters. So it's like I'm walking in because I knew Sticks, Are you Speedwagon Journey and Foghat. <laughs> I was from the Midwest. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, I just apologize. But to hear all this other stuff, it was about that cover that actually introduced me as like these guys look legitimate. And I bet you dollar that music behind that cover is gonna be a joy and probably better than another journey album. Right.
1: I, I remember reading an article somewhere that sort of criticized unfairly I think but There was um, a 1960s Thelonious Monk recording for Columbia called Underground. There's a photo of Thelonious Monk playing the piano in what looks like an underground bunker during World War II. When you put the record on, it's, inverted commas, just another Thelonious Monk album, which to me is just incredible. But in that case the cover artwork and by its name sold something that wasn't there it was you know another brilliant Thelonious Monk record but it wasn't experimental which I, I think that the cover artwork had seemed to indicate it was going to be. <laughs> Was that something that you were ever asked to do, you know, for any of your clients, make something that you felt didn't really reflect the music, but they said, no, this is the artwork that we want.
4: Like I said, when somebody's brand new, they don't know they can be an asshole or they can demand things. They just kind of go along with it and they just see you as an advisor. It's like, look, I work for you, right? I had a call that blew my sock off if we're talking about brilliant artists. It was Bo Diddley. He needed a cover. He was on a small label and I was going to get the job. Mm. Bo Diddley. And then take a pause. And then the person said, and his 20 year old girlfriend has just on picture of him riding a red bull and that's what he wants is the cover and he doesn't need a photo shoot. What do you do when you have the chance to actually work with a god and the god has a 20 year old <laughs> girlfriend and he doesn't want you messing any of that up because if you go in that room and say ma'am it's a beautiful drawing let's put it on the back cover that's not going to happen because Bo Diddley at the time I believe was over 70 and if he had a 20 year old girlfriend that was enough energy he wanted to put into that equation but you often you'll get something and they'll want to make it work. And it's a challenge to try to help them realize that their idea will not work. But it means that you have to shepherd a dead baby (laughs) through the process to show them that it's just not what they need. And there are often sometimes, you know, a label will come in and say, this is what he needs. I know he's not in the room, but this is what we're doing. And then he comes in or she, and they say, no, this is what I have in mind. The saddest also that I had another group that I was able to do the photo shoot with, the Isley Brothers, and they were just parting paths with the label. And was really awesome is like, you think the Eisley Brothers, right? Here are these, hmm. again, gods. And they walk in, and they're all sharp, you know, sharp suits. But their wives come in as well. But they were funnier and a, a laugh more than the Isley Brothers. They're, again, when these people are that old, I mean, in the sense that the Eisley Brothers had spanned. 50 years, right? For them to come in there, that's like, where's the food? Can I get something to drink? Give me a clue on where the bathroom is and how much more time do you need? They don't care. But what was bummer about that Isley Brothers is that they, the band uh, broke up with the label and they went a separate way. And that song, Who's That Lady? Who's that lady? One of their last really big double platinum hits was on that record. And I wasn't able to have my name on it. And that's the thing that really... You, you know, the one that got away kind of thing. I didn't say this, but you're only as good as the last cover, right? You're only as good as your last movie. Well, my last was Stone Tumble Pilots, and that lasted pretty well. You know, it's 25 years ago now. But with N.W.A. and all the rap stuff, I was that generation. But I wasn't Tupac, Snoop Dogg, and Eminem, who was going to come up right after that. Five biggest records, you could say this way, I had been a part of. Five biggest records for West Coast rap. Five this way, I split my career in half. I would have had an extra 10 years if I did all of those other covers because they would have said, oh, I want the guy who did the Eminem rap. I want the guy who did Dre's last cover, you know? I-
1: Last week I was on an online music forum and quite by coincidence for the timing of our discussion, someone had gone and posed the question about, you know, say, take an individual artist and picked their best cover and their worst cover and there was mm. a lot of interesting submissions there just looking at some of the suggestions i thought wow there does look to be a theme here so for instance they had for yes someone had gone and picked layer although it really could have been any one of those early yes albums and the worst was Big Generator, which you just see the word big in what looks like some really amateurish fonts taking up 90% of the cover. It's like a really horrible robotic font. I don't know if you're familiar with this cover, but it's a world away from the fantasy world of the early, yeah, the Roger I mean- Dean covers. And another one that I remember having a real what the fuck moment was <laughs> thinking of David Bowie. You think that the classic early covers, in particular, the Heroes cover, Where, you know, this great black and white shot Him putting his hands near his hair As if he's slicking back his hair or something like that And then uh, his album The Next Day From about, when was it? Like in the noughts sometime And it's basically the hero's cover, but with a white box covering his face and the words the next day put in the middle. And they're thinking, who thought that that was a good idea for an album cover? Uh, And I hope it wasn't David himself. And someone else went and pointed out Emerson Lake and Palmer, the album Brain Salad Surgery, this very complex, futuristic looking album cover. And then someone said the worst one would have been Love Beach, which Bernie, I think you would appreciate, was a very GGTMC album cover.
2: Okay, I thought you were going to say Arcus for that one. Well, that, that's uh, I thought you were going to oh, yeah, say well, for that that's, one.
1: That's that's closer, at least in invention. Love Beach has a photo of the three of them with their Hawaiian shirts just standing there. It's, it looks like it's more like going to uh, be yacht rock, and you know, the the shirts are slightly open, very ggtMC And just instinctively, I knew what these people were saying about you know, great album covers, shit album covers. But from not just your perspective as an album cover designer, but from all the people that you had in the film i mean i know that often album covers any artwork can be fairly subjective you know you like what you like but objectively what are things that you say no that's an absolute no no we can use that photo we can use that painting but we can't position it here or we can't put that uh, font with the with the band name or something like that objectively do you have like a style book that says i will never do this i can stretch for that but i can never do this sort of thing
4: unfortunately when you're a graphic designer art director creative director photographer you usually are freelance or you're in-house and uh, you have a boss and you, he has a boss. <laughs> and as much as you think that you're important and special to the process and in these types of forums, you know, uh, we get a little bit of respect when it comes down to the record label itself, the A&R director and the head of the label, they have all the power. And they choose and decide what something uh, should be. Right. When we say, oh, I wouldn't take that. I don't want to be taken advantage of. So when you have a lot of situations like that, there are uh, um, but there are a lot of people a lot of voices in the room and the loudest voice wins and sometimes you you look at something like um physical graffiti with led zeppelin that i was saying you know, they did 10 covers coda is the other one it's like look at that it's just type are you serious look at a present look at all of the amazing stuff that hypnosis did and then you look at some of the stuff that people come across with and quite honestly a lot of the robert plant that was afterward um i i love the sound that they came up with robert plant stuff is atrocious uh, poor design but tell you kind of a story that goes into that my boss at Capitol records at a certain point was tommy Steele, and he did quite a few covers uh, a lot of things that you would know and i was in his office one day and he just simply happened to bring because he was freelance he brought in his portfolio of all of the covers that he had done and at the time wasn't digital it was just here's a cover and it looked like a pregnant portfolio it was you know up by nine inches because he's done a lot of work i'm going through it and then i come to tom petty down the torpedoes that was the first cover that i had ever bought. And here it's in the portfolio of my boss. I was like, when you think about, and I was only 23, when you think about the blessing that I had was not that I had the chance to do all of that, but I had the chance to learn from, like I said, Roland Young and the Equinox Fire and Ice cover. I was able to learn from the best of the best. And I was able to, through this, be a part of a a community of people that there's not a lot of people like I said 40 million records how many people could say they have 40 million pieces of art throughout the world like you know some people I do some watercolor and my mom bought one and my dad really likes it and it's in his office but it's like how many people could say that it's because I was able to learn what was good like you were saying and what was awful and you tried to steer people away from the awful but like Tommy Steele in my piece did say he said sometimes they have something in their head and you got to show it to them before you can go on to the next idea because they'll never think that that idea they see the idea they never know how bad it's going to be or how bad it could have been and what's interesting about that tom petty damn the torpedoes think about that one of the most recognizable covers but what it is he's in a sound studio soundstage right just a place to take some photos it's a seamless with two c stands it's a pink paper that's rolled down he's standing underneath it and off to the right you can see that it doesn't go all the way full frame because back of the day that they didn't have retouching, that was not that costly, right? If you wanted to retouch something, it was going to cost you a lot of money. You can see the side of the C stand in the in the room in there. So it was like it's kind of a throwaway photograph that became a, a famous shot. And damn, the torpedoes is actually just Tommy Steele's handwriting. It. So it's like when you think about it, it doesn't need to be magic. The music actually makes it magic, and then we transfer all of that magic onto that single image. And we look back going, "Wow, really? You like that? That's." awesome but then there are the other ones that you put blood sweat and tears into with a lot of i was telling you about the beastie boys i came like a big barrage this is what i want to do for your cover and i had all these comps made up because i had money to do it all these neat ideas we're going to do it so that paul's boutique was going to be like a square box it was going to have all these flaps on it so the album itself was going to be one two three four five six seven right so you fold it up all of it would be so you fold it up into a box and it was going to be a trash compactor box, this metal shape of like the menorah and the, 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 um, airplane that isn't licensed to ill uh, shoved into the into the piece itself. Everything's melted. All this pop culture nonsense is just shoved into this trash compactor piece because they wanted something big. They didn't want that. They wanted their idea. So you can come up with all sorts of really cool stuff, but when it comes down to it, it comes down to what they can get across. Again, Capitol Records, I was there for MC Hammer. Well, when MC Hammer and my first cover, it was no budget. By the time they had that third big, huge hit for them, as I spoke of, they had Annie Leibowitz do a $100,000 photoshoot day. I'll just say those numbers again. $100,000, one photoshoot, one image. And it was MC Hammer sitting in a throne in an alley with, it was kind of like the Beatles cover with the babies and the meat. It was so kind of and machine guns and money and all this stuff that everyone got such cold feet when they saw the image of all this iconography of basically ruling the world from a subworld, dark place. They didn't use that shot that was a $100,000 because it didn't fit what they needed and they knew that they couldn't get away with it because the recording itself was worth more than losing a $100,000 to Annie Leibowitz. Sometimes stuff doesn't get passed and you don't know why. And sometimes they put up crap that you're embarrassed. I go online allmusic.com places that you can see who's referenced as musician as an artist on all the covers and I don't know how they were able to come up with knowing that I was the art director on the shit that I'm embarrassed of. And then the other stuff is like, why isn't that one up there? They knew I did that one. when I was freelance I had to use an alternative name because I was at Capital and also doing freelance stuff so I have names that they'd never know who I was so I'm not credited for a lot of stuff that I had done.
2: What's going on with the film? Is it showing at festivals? Is it streaming? Have you got like a physical release plans?
4: Yeah so because I did a documentary that was not politically charged it's not something that most festivals want to pick up so I did do the festivals series it was in 14 different Festivals around the United States, around the world, actually. And that gave it notoriety here and there, which was nice. And I had done some blogs and stuff like that. Through other means, I was able to get it distributed. So it's a worldwide distribution. It was done by Rainmaker, and they are in the UK. And if you go to Sky Arts and Entertainment, you'd be able to see it there. And it's also dubbed in Italian for Sky Italia. Beyond that, you can't find it except if you go to Amazon Prime. And do a search for the album, and it'll be up there. But oh, just cool. recently, what was I'm sorry?
2: So it's just going to say, Amazon is going to reach a lot of people there, so that's cool.
4: Yeah. So, and I just want people to see it. What was interesting? The very last festival that I was in Richmond, Virginia, here in the United States, there was a problem with the device that I'd sent, and it didn't play all the way. So there were a bunch of people who were like, oh, "That's really, I really like the idea." There was one person in the in the uh, theater that I've connected at Magnolia Films here in America, and he's very interested in talking so there are those places where festivals do work but i did all of my festivals those 14 during COVID. and when i had it in pasadena california at their festival i was able to get some people to come but again these 85 year old people it was during COVID, so i wasn't able to get john kosh who's over than that older than that so you know what it really was all about is that i wanted a reason for all of these older people to get together and relive the past because whenever i would get on the phone with some of these people they would be just like me, chew your ear off and they wouldn't stop until you said, I got to go. But it was really just to get everybody together and, and see it and really kind of know that their work was out there and it was remembered and people love it, you know? So, yeah. So I'm hoping that they'll, through time, I'll, I'll be able to, it'll progress into a few other ways, but available on Amazon. Was this your first film?
1: Have you, have you not got the filmmaking bug or was it because it was a purpose you wanted to talk about your life and your colleagues life that one and done or do you have something else that you have planned
4: well the thing the idea was is everybody that I did this with were all in Los Angeles because I did it with myself me myself and I I live in LA I was able to drive to their studio and photograph them right interview them there's New York that I would like to do also and as this one was about the digital disruption as kind of the conduit the kind of the idea that held the piece together what I wanted to do is a a New York spin New York being another melting pot of genres I mean, Tin Pan Alley into jazz and blues and hip hop and disco and everything that came out of what was New York, because they, in a different way, they were on top of each other and the world influence, right? Uh, British Invasion and all of the other people that were really kind of in that, they created on top of necessity. You know, just like with um, hip hop, with rap, with the scratching, that's because people didn't have guitars and amps and basses and drums, right? You created and looping. All of that was created with cassette Tapes, you know. The base is is that you can have creative genius and have no money, and often that is absolutely the catalyst for great. So it was that, and also talking about you know obviously uh Britain being the third. If someone was interested in 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 doing that, so there are ideas, and there are those who have been left out, and it wasn't intentional. It was because I didn't have a car that drove all the way to New York or over the pond.
1: So what this will be like a part two or something like that?
4: I'm hoping if uh, if this kind of gets some legs and it continues to grow. I'd love to do a, a New York fashion to it. Because again, to me, it's, it's about the people in that sense and about the the birth of genres in that one space. And then again, obviously, Europe is so rich. It's, you know, geez, where do you start?
1: Hey, the Antipodes, we have some pretty good album covers down here. I mean, you know, very disappointed. Now, is it, seriously, has the idea of being able to get financed for a, a mini series or something like that because it's very rich ground that you've tapped into here i mean you, you talk about new york and you talk about looking at european album art covers and i'm requesting for that here but there's so much out there you, you could get a whole mini series is, is
4: that ever crossed your mind work is something that this is the passion that was my weekends for six years um and i have a full-time gig as i am also still a designer this was something i needed to get out honestly I felt because those older art directors were getting older. Chuck Beeson, who is in it, who was part of AM Records for 32 of its 34 years. He was their absolute rock. He's in a convalescent home with his wife and he's been in lockdown for two and a half years. So there are those people that I was able to get, get a hold of. And unfortunately, three of the people that I have interviewed have already passed away. We're not here forever. And yes, I would love to do that finding financing, but it is, if, if you know anything from doing, all of the work that you guys are both doing. It's thankless and you got to just keep doing it. 99 podcasts, that's incredible. That's a lot of dedication. And anybody who has that much dedication can go to 100. Yeah, I I think
1: we'll aim for 100, I think. (laughs) All right. Look, Kevin, this has been an absolute hoot. Thank you so much for your time and talking to us about your work and the film in general. It's just been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you. And uh, again, it's very important that these types of things are out there for people. People to see and hear, so they don't have to hear the same blah 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 and political points of view that just you know separate us. To have things that unite us more than separate is, is a great, important thing. And I, I thank both of you for doing.
1: That. Thank you very much. All right. Well, Bernie and I will be back in a moment to talk about episode 100. All right, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to See Here, episode 99. Five. Huge thanks once again to Kevin for being so very generous with his time and his stories. Some great discussion there, Bernie, wasn't it?
2: Uh, yeah, and it's it's crazy to think that we just spent like two hours talking to a guy who got his daughter on the cover of uh, an NWA LP. <laughs> And has has worked with all these people and is responsible for some, you know, really iconic covers that we all know as music fans. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, no, really nice guy. Like you say, a real raconteur. And uh, I always get a little kind of like, wow, he's he's the guy that did that. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was awesome.
1: And he knows all the people who did that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much, Kevin. Please follow up with that film. As he said, it's on Amazon Prime. I don't know, it might be region-affected, so I'm not sure if it's on uh, Amazon Prime here in Australia.
2: He also mentioned it's on uh, Sky Arts here in the UK, and I think in Italy as well, he said, didn't he? Yes, in, he did. Uh,
1: Follow up with that film, if you can. Yeah, If uh, we get any further information, I'll post it in the Facebook group. All right. Episode 100. We can't delay this any further. Let's talk about what we got coming next month. We are going to be joined by two of our podcasting mentors.
2: Podcasting legends.
1: Podcasting legends. Exactly. One who's been on the show only last month, but has been with us a few times. And that is Mike White of The Projection Booth. And the other person is a man I've really wanted to get on the podcast for a long, long time, but he's a very, very busy man. He does a million and one things, including the wonderful Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema podcast, which is really what united us all those years ago, Bernie.
2: I think there are a lot of people in the podcasting game, or not even just that, but it was through the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema and their Facebook group, particularly, that All these people around the world just sort of connected through a love of film. And here we are eight, ten years later, and we're still friends, we're still... Some of us are still recording podcasts together. (laughs) They were in on the ground floor, super influential. Yeah, it's a real... uh, It's an honour to have... uh,
1: Will Smith.
2: ...joining us. And not that Will Smith. You don't have to worry about getting slapped or anything like that. (laughs) No. It is a a different Will Smith, the real,
1: true Will Smith. Yes, this, this Will Smith is more likely to say... Bring it in, bring it in, which when I (laughs) I got to uh, meet him face-to-face five years ago today, as we record this, Oh, my God. Five years ago today, I was in Toronto, and Will and his wonderful family welcomed me and my family in with open arms, and we met him at the train station, and first thing he said was, bring it in, bring it in, gave us huge hugs. The man is certainly more likely to hug you than to give you a slap across the face that's for sure
2: pre-covid times as well when the when the hug was uh,
1: yeah yeah so anyway uh will and mike are joining us to talk about a film that is hugely important in 80s film history and it just happens to be a music related film i thought we needed something big we're going to go back to a round table because we've been doing quite a lot of interviews but this is going to be a round table with will and mike and the film is 1984's film by Milos Forman Amadeus. Now, this was because Will had posted on Facebook a few months ago that this is a film he'd only just watched for the first time. And I thought, right, that's our way to get Will on the show. That's our 100th episode. We needed a big film for a round table for 100th episode. And that's a big one. So I'm looking forward very much for the four of us. And really, five if I can convince our beloved compadre Tim Merrill to quit his sabbatical. But if he can't, then we look forward to whenever it is that he can come back. Definitely four of us, if not five, to discuss Amadeus. So immensely looking forward to that in August of 2022.
2: Yeah, get ready, count all those uh, Falco references. Uh, there's one already. Yep. <laughs> there we go. You can
1: have that one to free Okay. As. Bernie mentioned on our last episode, I think our Instagram account has, has that been come out of lockdown?
2: I am not sure what's going on with it. I think it may have bit the dust. And if that is the case, I will start a new account and contact people again. So um, I'll have a better idea of what's going on with that next
1: month. Okay, no worries. Well, um, so keep your peepers peeled. I'll post something in Facebook about that. I've only just created in the last week or so, a love that album Instagram account. For what reason, I know not why. But I will, in the interim, include any information related to see uh, here as well but we'll have a dedicated see here account hopefully by the time that this reaches your ear holes but uh, just keep a look on the facebook page in the facebook group i should say which is facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast you can email us at see here podcast at gmail.com and i think that's all the formalities so until next month's relevant shoe please be nice to each other Look at your album covers and admire them as great works of art unto themselves. Go out and listen to the Magic Flute, if you wish, in preparation for uh, next month's episode on Amadeus. We look forward to uh, speaking to you all. All the best. Cheers.
2: Cheers.